so sexy and, and full of joie de vivre. You are now part of an underprivileged minority and you are going to suffer. I mean, we don't have answers about the bootleg porn. Remember, 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 remember. Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast, a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's so damn excited to welcome my dear friend and mentor, Jessica Ashley, to join me in Living Forever as we break down the talent and triumph of 1980s electrifying film, Fame! Before we get into the grit and glory, I'd like to tell you a lot about the incomparable Jessica Ashley. Jessica is the divorce coach for moms. She's a certified coach who helps women at all stages thrive through transitions with creative problem solving, strategy, laughter, and of course, cussing. She's also the founder and host of Single Mom Nation and its sister podcast. Jessica is a badass award-winning writer who lives in Chicago with her teenager and second grader. Welcome to the pod, Jess. Thank you. You called me a mentor. You are my mentor. And since what we're talking about, I feel like now I'm going to step into the role of Debbie Allen. <laughs> Lydia, yes. <laughs> yes. You have been my mentor. You've been my mentor. Ooh. You've been my editor. You've been my cheerleader. You are really important in my life. You're my big sister. I love you. I love you too. And hearkening back to your old blog, my kids still call you Lori Garcia, mommy friend. Oh, my phone. So they're like, is that mommy friend? <laughs> well, Jessica was my editor way back in the day with Yahoo Shine. That's right. A parenting guru. A parenting guru. Yes. Back in my, in my parenting writing days. And you're quite an accomplished writer. You're a divorce coach. You've come a long way, baby. Thank you very much. And try, doing more divorce coaching these days, COVID times, than oh. writing, but here we are. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. And so I asked you, Jessica, pick something that's really meaningful to you. And you chose fame. I think you were a high school theater nerd like me, right? I really was. Journalist, yearbook. Oh, oh I love it. Theater nerd. It was the best. It was the very best. It was the best. It's funny because I came to this movie a little bit later. I was hardcore into fame, the TV series as a kid. Of course. Oh, yes. Yes. I never missed it. It was important viewing. But I remember seeing this movie after I had already been like a big, you know, fame TV stan and being a little bit shocked by it. It's gritty. That scene with Coco was rough for me. And I was very surprised. I I actually think as a kid, I didn't really like the movie because it made me feel uncomfortable. What were your experiences with the movie? Did you Mm. see the movie before the TV series? I believe that I did. But the TV series was definitely a foundational part of my growing up. Yes. And we're going to talk about Lori Singer in a minute. Love her. <laughs> I, I deeply feel like she helped shape my sexuality because of that and her role in, um, in Footloose. But anyway, I think gritty is the right word. Now, yes. I think 
that this was based on a short that Irene Cara created. Is that right? I hadn't read that. I saw it on IMDb that there were some of the people were in this short and then they created this, which I didn't know that Irene Cara was such like the center. I mean, obviously as a character, but the center point of it. So there is a grittiness. Like it does feel very indie as a movie. It does. That's a great way to describe it. It does feel very indie. It doesn't gloss over the hard parts. I said grit and glory in the beginning. I mean, that's really what it is to have fame and to be famous in New York. In I mean, this film came out in 1980. It was a different time. Like, I mean, there was a lot. It was sweat and it was hard work. You remember the intro to the TV series? Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, it was like, you're going to pay for this and sweat. Like, this is what is expected of you. And I don't know. That was just so appealing to me that there are these people with such a raw talent and real human desire to just be bigger than life. Right. And if this movie was made today or remade today, everybody would be so pretty. Not that they're not beautiful humans. They are. But everybody looks like they are a kid in a classroom and sweaty and not made up. And so there is that element of realness that I love about it. I don't know what I thought at the time, but I didn't have to compare like a high school musical now where everybody's polished and perfect. That's very, very true. Yeah. I mean, the film Fame was remade in 2009. It was universally panned. I mean, everyone Mm. was so pretty. It was glossy magazine stuff Mm -hmm. and it wasn't the same. Mm-mm. And we know that. And I think that was part of it. It was like, no, you took this thing that was so raw and you made it you you made it too pretty. It didn't speak to audiences the same way. Yes, agreed. Yeah. I think that's what I thought high school was going to be like. Like to me, that lunchroom where they just like break out yes. in songs and dance. Like I thought this is going to be what high school is like. Honestly, <laughs> you're like I can't wait. And we, here in Chicago, we have an arts high school. It's now called Shy Arts. Back then it was called the Academy. It was a place I really thought about going. I pursued art and theater for those schools in the city and then didn't end up going to those schools. But anyway, I thought like, if I go there, that's exactly what the lunchroom is going to be like. It's going to be so creative. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe at a performing arts high school, it is. Where there's just spontaneous, yes, improvised song and dance. (laughs) A girl can dream. Okay, so this film was released on May sixteenth, nineteen eighty. The budget was eight point five million. It made forty two million in the box office. It did quite well. Oh yeah. So it was directed by Alan Parker, who we know from Midnight Express, Mississippi Burning, Pink Floyd, The Wall. The Commitments, which came out quite a bit later. Do you oh. do you know that film? Do you yeah. love it? Oh, fantastic, yeah. right? And uh, more recently, Angela's Ashes. But he's not a stranger to heavy subject matter. And there is a lot of that in this oh, movie. Oh, my God. I, I think I get more of it as an adult. For sure. Than I did then. Yes. But, whew. Yeah. And so the idea for this film was conceived by producer David De Silva. This happened in 1976. He saw a chorus line. And I mean, so there's a lot of elements of that in this, you see. So De Silva hired playwright Christopher Gore to write the script. And the script was originally titled Hot Lunch. 
after oh, like the lunch that scene. scene. Right. That scene. But what's really funny is once Parker learned that hot lunch was, quote, New York slang for oral sex, they changed the name of the film to Fame after the 75 Bowie song. Oh. <laughs> so the, was Irene Cara in that one then? Now I feel like I just made something up and then launched it into in the, the chorus the No, in like in the original we have to look it up and see if there oh, is. To see, yeah, the short, short. Yeah, I, d- I don't know. I didn't come across that in my research, okay. but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Okay. I mean, she was very seasoned. She was a child actress, stage actress. So she was very seasoned. And she actually wrote the song in the lunchroom. Was it called? Hot Lunch. Hot Lunch. She wrote that song. So wow. yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me. So the original script wasn't as gritty as what we ended up seeing. The director, Parker, ended up rewriting elements of the script to make it grittier and darker. Huh. Interesting. That's what they were going for. It's what happened. There's just so many issues to dig into, but what really struck me in terms of grittiness is like everybody by Bruno has shitty parents. (laughs) Like they're absent or there's like something really wrong. Oh, you will see that theme in 80s films. It's very, very rare to see good relationships between parents and children. Mm -hmm. This is like a, my theory here, it's a coming of age of a generation of like late boomers who went to therapy or starting to go to therapy. And then they were the filmmakers and writers. Very interesting. This is my theory. Quite possible. So let's get into the film. Okay, let's do it. I got my notes. You got your notes. Okay, she ready. Okay, so we open on auditions taking place at New York City High School for the Performing Arts. The New York Board of Education refused to allow them to film at that school because they objected to the film's themes involving sex, drug use, and use of profanity. So the film was actually shot on location in New York City over 91 days in two unused schools. Heron High School, and Performance Space 122. Oh, Mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. We open on the school. They're having auditions. It's utter chaos. There's so much happening. There's cacophonous noise everywhere. There's a million people. (laughs) It's sweaty bodies. It's summertime. It's like- There's tubas. There's so many tubas. Oh, good (laughs) Lord. Like, calm down, brass section. Like, relax. (laughs) Yes, I know. So we meet Shirley- who's come in to audition with the help of her friend, Leroy. Leroy played by Gene Anthony Ray. He's amazing. He is amazing. So raw. He's perfect for that role. Perfect. Here's a little bit of trivia about him. He actually attended New York High School of the Performing Arts for a year before he got kicked out. His mother said it was too disciplined for this wild child of mine. Oh, so the role then was mirroring who he was. It really was. And he auditioned for this role. He was 17 years old. He was attending the Julia Richmond High School, and he ended up skipping class to audition. I'm sure they sanctioned that. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, yeah, you deserve it. It's cool. It's cool. (laughs) It's fine. I I love him. I I love, like, he's such a dirty dancer. And that's like what sparks the like how compelling he is. And I had heard that he didn't have a lot of formal training. He just had raw talent. 
a lot of the moves, a lot of what he knew was not only instinctive, but he just kind of picked it up on the streets in New York. You just don't want him to stop dancing. He went on to the show. He did. Absolutely. Uh, his story has a tragic end. We'll we'll get to that a little bit later. But yeah, in this, I mean, he was a very bright light. So, you know, he's there to help his friend, Shirley. He's not really even there to audition. They're like, you have to audition. So this is when we meet English teacher Mrs. Sherwood, played by Anne Mira, who is Ben Stiller's mom. Looking like a snack in this, I got to say. <laughs> she looks great. Oh, that's so funny. You know, we know her from Night at the Museum, Sex in the City, Mary Brady, mm-hmm. Rhoda. Rhoda. I loved that show when I was a yeah. kid. I really oh. did. Yeah. She's like, Leroy, you got you to gotta check in. You got to register. Surrender your knife. You know, he has a million other knives, so it's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. We're introduced to Doris Finsecker, played by Maureen Teefee. She's known for Grease, too. I didn't know that. Yes. She plays Sharon in Grease too. I love Doris. Do you? I love her. Okay. So she's a prospective drama student. She wants to sing her audition, her drama audition, because she's nervous. It's terrible. It's so bad. So her overbearing mom is there who's convinced, you know, (laughs) she's going to be a really big star. Doris sings her audition she sings Barbara Streisand's The Way We Were it was horrible (laughs) and you know what I have written down here in my notes Doris's old lady mom is my age (laughs) girl you look like a snack you don't look like her she has that like set hair and and her like schmata you know like her house dress Oh my God. I love a house dress, particularly in COVID times. But it is something to realize, like, I thought she was a hundred, but no, she's my age. (laughs) That's fantastic. I also have to give shout out to her little brother, Doris's little brother. Okay. Because I actually got up and took a picture of my television screen when I rewatched this movie and sent it to my brother because it is straight up my brother in the 80s. Like they could be twins. Oh, God. He has like big bedhead blonde hair and big old brown glasses. glasses. <laughs> Maybe that gave me even more affection because I was like, oh, I'm the mom here and that's my <laughs> great. It's awesome. Okay. Next, we meet Ralph Garcia slash Raul Garcia. Oh, and his bandana. Yeah. So, He is played by Barry Miller. Uh, We know him from The Last Temptation of Christ, Saturday Night Fever, and Peggy Mm. Sue Got Married. Mm. So he dreams of becoming a comedian like his idol, Freddie Prinze. I'm like, I don't really know Freddie Prinze. I'm familiar with Freddie Prinze Jr., but my connection to Freddie Prinze, not really there. No. mm -mm. It was maybe, that was an older reference. Yes, for sure. Yeah, so he tells a lot of grandiose stories about his very talented father. Ralph is told to be real, stop putting on an act, and he just, he doesn't know how to do that. He's like every guy I hated in high school. (laughs) Well, Doris didn't hate him. She should have. (laughs) Red flag. (laughs) Red flag. Ugh. I just hate that. Like, I hate the character who makes fun of people because he wants their affection. 
Yeah. It's very attention seeking. It's very immature. It's gross. Yeah. Listen to the divorce coach, you guys. <laughs> it's gross. It's gross. This is not going to go well for you. <laughs> no. And, and it doesn't. So there you it go. It does not. No. No, 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 no. So we meet triple threat Coco, Irene Cara. Oh, you know what, Jessica? I saw her perform. I think it was 92. It was 92 or 93. I saw her perform in Jesus Christ Superstar on stage. What? Yeah, she was Mary Magdalene. She's <gasps> fan-fucking-tastic. Yeah. Oh it was my amazing. God. It was amazing. And, of course, Irene Cara, actress, singer, she sang Flash Dances, What a Feeling. I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you didn't have that album? I didn't have that album. I oh. loved the song. I guess I just never made the connection. Huh? You were too little. Maybe. Really have to pause to acknowledge Coco's bangs. Oh, girl. They're so short. They're little Betty Page. Yes. Like, yeah. Yes. And at the time, I remember thinking, what? What? Like, that is maybe, like, too um, hip. Or something for me. Like, I remember at the time thinking, why is her bangs so short? But now I'm like, she is the one whose style perseveres all these years later. She was fashion forward. Fashion forward. She looks amazing. I mean, she has aged so beautifully. Have you seen yeah. her oh, recently? Yeah. Oh. I mean, amazing. Gorge. Gorge. Oh. I wanted more of her here. I felt like she's like the center, but then they needed to be more of her. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I could have watched an entire film directly centered around her. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's so good. And she's like sassy and entrepreneurial and a hustler. Yeah, and she has like real, real vision for her future. She's just mm -hmm. so laser focused. I found that quality so compelling. It's magnetic. Mm -hmm. You're like, how are you so steadfast? I love mm -hmm. that about and, her. And yet completely vulnerable. And yet young and naive in a way, like she thinks mm. because she reads the trades, because she's immersed in this performing arts high school that she's smarter or more mature than she actually is. I mean, there's really no substitution for wisdom, right? So right. she wants it so bad. I think it sort of fogs her maybe better judgment. Yes. We meet Bruno Martelli, played by Lee Carreri. He's an actor and composer, like IRL. He does stuff for like movies and film. Yes. I was surprised to read how many soundtracks and scores yes. he has composed. I know. Good for him. I know. Go go, Lee Carreri. I mean, it seems apparent when he is performing that that's really him. Also wouldn't happen today. Right. I love his audition, though, because the, um, the he gets so much shit for having everything electronic. Right. And, you know, it's so offensive in the face of classical music and, you know, real instruments. And then when you look at it today, you're like, this is so low tech. Compared <laughs> to but at the time, it was like straight up experimental crazy shit. Right. Like, like what space, is this I'm listening to? Right. It was like space shit, space music. <laughs> it reminded me of Ross and friends with the keyboard. Right. <laughs> was he, do you think Bruno was sexy? I do. Do you think he had sex appeal? Okay. I don't know that he had sex appeal, but his eyes 
were piercing. I found him very attractive. I don't know that his personality was super attractive. That is interesting. Did you? Um, no, I think he's too dry. But yeah. I'm curious that really like the only guy with sex appeal is that asshole. Oh, you're talking about uh, uh, Ralph? Ralph. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the only one that they portray in that way. So anyway, interesting to me. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the music teacher, Mr. Sharofsky is like, I don't know what the hell to make of this music. <laughs> I don't even know what's happening here. So, so we cut to Leroy and Shirley dancing. Okay. So this is the big audition. <laughs> Leroy's moves are wild, uninhibited, you know, crazy level of energy. The teachers like don't really know what to make of it. The dance teacher, Mrs. Berg, played by Joanna Merlin. We know her from Mystic Pizza, Law and Order, SVU. And she's also a casting director in real life. Oh. Yes. And she helped cast The Last Emperor and Big Trouble in Little China. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I like the life beyond the big blockbuster. Yes. That's cool. Okay. And then Debbie Allen is kind of, what's, what's her name? Okay. So her character's name is Lydia. Okay. And she's playing a dance teacher, Debbie Allen. Okay. Fame, yeah. the TV show. Yes. A Different yeah. World, Grey's Anatomy. I mean, a hundred things. Yeah. But she's she's like drooling over Leroy. Oh, she is. She's just like, your dance moves are hot and sexy. You are like raw and talented. Yes. But Debbie Allen's part in this film is so small. I was surprised. I, I didn't recall that. Mm-mm. And in watching it on the rewatch, I was like, oh, Debbie Allen, such a talent. She's being wasted in this film. It actually really made me sad. But she told Shonda Land, I remember auditioning. I actually read for Irene's role, Coco. Oh. Yeah. But they got the right one. Coco was her vibe. And I was cast as Lydia, who was originally written as an older student. Huh. She said, after the film was edited, I was turned into a young teacher, but I was supposed to be Coco's nemesis, doing everything that she might want to do. Huh. That's a very different storyline. It is. Dare I say it would have been maybe even better? I mean, this film is fantastic, but I'm into it. I'm into that idea. I'm interested in that. And then we would not have had her being the iconic dance teacher in the in the show. So true. If she had been the upperclassman rather than the teacher here, we might not have seen her shine as bright as she did and fame the TV show. But I feel like if she was cast as the older student, she would have probably, there would have been no need for the ballet student because she would have been right. Coco's competition. Right. That competition is very limited. There's not a lot of interaction between that. I do think like my only hesitation about that is like, this is a trope of the girls who compete with each other. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like that Coco just had her moment to shine and, and we get the nuance of the ballet student who's privileged and, and her issues later. So it's a very different competition than like they're duking it out for the same role. Yeah. So we find out Doris and Ralph both got into the school. I'm like, how? <laughs> that was the biggest mystery to me. Their auditions were trash. They were terrible. They were bad. <laughs> okay, wait. 
I'm realizing that I'm like confusing the asshole character with Ralph the Redhead, gay kid. Oh, no, that's Montgomery. Montgomery. Okay, thank you. Okay, yes, thank you. Yes, that's Montgomery. Okay, I was like, wait, did I? Okay, right. Yes. Because I'm thinking of Doris and Montgomery befriending each other in the stairwell. Yes. So that happens our freshman year. It's now the freshman year. And in English class, here we get our first glimpse of the problems that Leroy is about to encounter in Mrs. Sherwood's class. Mm. So, you know, he'd rather listen to music than pay attention. She's very clear that she expects the kids to give academics equal time to performing. And Leroy thinks it's bullshit. He just wants to dance. I mean, he wasn't even there to audition. He was there to help a friend. And now it's like, okay, I'm here. I get to dance. Great. Oh, shit. I got to actually go to school. Right. This is when we meet the teachers officially and we learn about what their expectations are in their classes. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Berg, the dance teacher, tells them they'll be learning all the things, you know, the ballet, tap, jazz, modern, blah, 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 blah. She thinks dance is a way of life. Drama teacher, Mr. Farrell, played by Jim Moody, we know him from Lean on Me and Bad Boys. He tells the students that out of the 50,000 actors out there, there are maybe 500 of them making a living. And they're doing commercials while the rest of them wait tables and clean apartments, living on welfare and hope. Real talk. And he tells them, you guys have to have a thick skin. You are now part of an underprivileged minority and you are going to suffer. And I wrote in my notes, sounds a bit like freelance writing. Right. (laughs) But suffering is really a theme here. Like It is. The word suffer. It has like, it's so dramatic. And, And not untrue. Not untrue. Yeah. I mean, I have to ask you, Jessica, did you ever really consider being an actress as a profession? I really did. And I remember in high school when I was doing lots of theater, my mom saying to me, one day you might grow up and do community theater. And it was a stab to the heart. I was like, what are you even talking about? This, I will be pursuing theater theater as my craft along with writing like when I applied to colleges most of the places I applied were for screenwriting because I thought I'd do both theater and writing together and the school I went to was one of the only schools I applied to that was just journalism yeah yeah so I really really thought I would pursue it you know I was involved in theater in high school also and my guidance counselor called my mom and me into a meeting. And it was the only time I ever met my guidance counselor. They didn't do shit for you in the Mm -hmm. 90s. Like Mm -hmm. that just, I don't know. It was the one meeting we ever had. And my counselor asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be an actress. And she looked at me and said, okay, but like what else? Oh, (laughs) And she didn't know me. I could have been Meryl Streep for all she fucking knew. But she was like, uh, yeah, okay, but and what else? And I remember, much like this conversation you had with your mother, I was really insulted by that. Like, I was going to high school theater festivals. And I'm not saying that because I was really good. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying I was doing these extra things Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Like, this is my this is my life. This is the the culture I've surrounded myself with. It was a little bit brutal to me in that moment. 
I also think there's just something to letting kids have their dreams and not having to be the hammer that crushes it. Yeah. I think that's okay. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm all for practicality. Like, yes, I'm a practical person. But like, like you wanting to go for screenwriting and acting, I think that's fantastic. Well, I had a what else, but it would have been, it was just like majoring in poverty and poverty. <laughs> like That's the practical part. <laughs> majoring in poverty and suffering. Poverty and suffering. A minor, a, a minor, minor. <laughs> and minor in community theater. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, I do think I had a moment though. You reminded me thinking back on like high school theater. I was in the crucible. That was my senior show. It was a big, big deal. And in the crucible, I really wanted to play Elizabeth, who was the very goodly wife. And I was like auditioning for it and I really wanted it and I didn't get it. And instead I was cast as Mary Warren, who's like goes crazy in the courtroom. And I was going to say, that's a really good part, Jessica. But I was disappointed. And my drama teacher said to me, I see what you're doing in what you're auditioning for and going for these roles that are like women who um, are quiet and pretty. And like, there's a persona here you're pursuing. Don't ever go for those roles go for the crazy one, let it loose, like get ugly. Yeah. And it ended up being amazing because I was like, I got thrown across the stage. It was so much fun. But I think that was a pivotal moment for me in just in my development of thinking like, why are you going for this like magazine character or something when really get into the the gritty part of it. Like, don't be afraid of that. So that was a really good theater moment, like theater slash life identity developing moment for me. Right. It's breaking out of your comfort zone, being right. vulnerable and learning about yourself in the process. Sure. Yeah. So that oh. was a good one to counter that I never pursued theater nor community theater. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that minor in community theater. And I love community theater. Can I of just course. say? Yes. Oh, the amount of talent that surrounds us in our community, it's astounding. I respect yeah. it so much. Yeah, it's not an insult. But oh, the guy might still get Yeah. You know, here's the thing. I actually think community theater is so vital to every community in that it not only gives performers a place to exercise their craft, it makes theater accessible to people. And going and seeing, you know, the big shows for me in downtown LA or you in downtown Chicago or on Broadway. I mean, that stuff's expensive and it's not easily accessible. Community theater is theater for everyone. And I I just appreciate that. I think it's so, so vital. Agreed. Although I have to say, you know, one of the best theater performances I've ever seen is a high school performance of Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay. I've told Kate this on the podcast before. It's my favorite musical. <gasps> so good. And these high school students, they were phenomenal. At the time, I was a Sunday school teacher, and one of my students was in it. It's why I went. Uh, and I went, went with my a very dear friend who was in theater in high school and college. We okay. met as camp counselor, so it translates. And he actually went back the next night to see it again because it was so good. Yes. Oh, 
so good. So I do agree. You like, you can't underestimate where there can be some really great stuff happening on smaller stages. Absolutely. Okay. We meet Mr. Sharofsky again. This is played by Albert Haig. I think is how you pronounce it. He's like a very familiar 80s face. Like he was in a lot of bit roles. Okay. So he's an, he's an actor and he's also a composer like IRL. Yeah. Oh. So he was in Fame, the TV show. Right. Yeah. He was in The Story of Us and Space Jam. Of course, the new <laughs> Space Jam just came out, but we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> and he was a composer for How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Well, what do you know? So he's real deal. And he has the accompanist who I'm like, they've got a thing going on the side. Oh, I love that. That's what I thought. Like side storyline. Yeah. 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 These orchestra rooms could tell a lot of stories of those two. <laughs> if these walls could talk. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So it's lunchtime. Let's talk about hot lunch. Uh, yes. <laughs> so we're in the lunchroom. It's chaotic as hell. The drama students are running their lines. The music students are practicing their own individual instruments and songs. Nobody's doing anything together. The dancers are dancing and stretching. Doris walks in and she is completely overwhelmed. And I haven't had this experience, but I have very much felt this at writing conferences. You and I have been to many. Yeah, I feel that way. There's just so much happening around you. And you're like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I don't know what conversation to join. I don't know where to sit. Like, it's a lot. Could you relate to this moment? Oh my God. So awkward. Yes. Yeah. This is my whole life walking into rooms. Oh. Anyway, by myself, maybe if I had a friend that's different, but she's still this awkward loner with the crazy hair and like (laughs) she's she fits in, but not really. And I think she doesn't know who she is yet. She, I mean, Jessica, Doris doesn't belong there. She's not talented. <laughs> She's talented later when she wears a beret. I okay, think, okay, okay. <laughs> On discovering her style, it all just comes together. It does. But I do think in the end, in the final scene, she is like in the chorus. And I thought, you know, I kind of love that one of the main characters was a chorus participant because you got to have a chorus and it's not a bad thing. Yeah. There's no small actor. There's no such thing as there's no small small roles. Yeah. No. Okay. So Bruno and the other students, they begin to jam. They jam, just a jam, (laughs) just a jam. (laughs) There's a piano in there. I mean, of course there is. Right. So Coco breaks into hot lunch jam. Let's not even talk about how gross that piano is after being in the lunchroom. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. There were so many people in there. I was just like, oh, COVID. It was running through my mind. I'm like, there are so many sweaty people in here right now. Yeah. But also, you know what came to me? I just suddenly had like the nose memory of what the, the lunchroom smells like. <laughs> the nose memory. <laughs> what does it smell like? Like tater tots and shepherd's pie. It's like yeah. gross. Peter thoughts and shepherd's pie. (laughs) Okay, so it's a jam. Singing. Kids are dancing on the pianos. Doris is like, oh shit, this this is like (laughs) way too much. She she can't handle it. She leaves. And this is when she meets redheaded Montgomery. Montgomery with the he's so soulful. Oh, isn't he? He's he's outside sitting in the stairwell, and she tells him it's too wild for me. 
Montgomery is played by Paul McCrane. Uh, he went on to do All Rise, ER, and 24. Yes. We find out that his mom is an actress and he is under the care of a doctor because apparently he, quote, has problems with women. Right. And we're like, what does that mean? It's a shrink. You d- that'll just place a movie in time when somebody says. <laughs> a shrink? I know. They're there to shrink your head. I didn't get the part about the women until, I mean, I remember watching it as a kid and and at the, like, oh, okay, he's gay. But this time around to watch it, like, how did I not get that? That's so funny. Yeah, well, I mean, if you don't know, you're just like, what does it mean to have problems with women? Right. As if homosexuality is having a problem with women. Right, fair. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. But that's, that, that was the, the blanket term. Right. That was <laughs> 1980. Yes. <laughs> Coco tries to convince Bruno to start a band with her. There's a lot of money to be made. But you know what? He'd rather write music in his basement alone. Yeah. Not interested. Doris is practicing a dramatic scene with Montgomery outside. She tells him she feels <laughs> too ordinary to be a good actress. She says, quote, everyone is so colorful and flamboyant. And she isn't. This is my life right here. Everyone is so colorful and flamboyant, and I'm not. I have felt this way as a writer. I feel this way as a podcaster. I feel this way in my life. Have you felt this way? Well, yeah. I mean, Jessica, you have pink hair. You guys, I'm sorry. I You don't know this. I don't think I ever felt ordinary. However, in high school, yes, 100%, because I thought... Like, maybe I dressed with flair, but I wasn't, like, a popular girl. I had glasses. and You had the Sally Jesse glasses. I've seen I pictures. I did, yes. right. So so I think I felt very ordinary and okay. very, like, middle of the road there. Okay. I'm going to drop a little Taylor Swift quote on you. Do. So, okay. In one of her newer songs, Mirabal, one of the lines in it that I love is, I've never been a natural. All I do is try, try, try. And it's just like a sort of a throwaway line. But I kept thinking of this with Doris. Like, maybe that's why I relate to her a little. Like, she tries. Oh, she's not a natural. Like, Coco is a natural. A natural. Double threat, right? Yes. And and Bruno is like, he can't help it. He's got to make this crazy space music. And Leroy just... God. Right. Oozing out, but not to her. She's been pushed so hard. And so she's just, it's, it's all try. It's all gumption without, I think the confidence to back it up. I never really thought of it that way, but you're right. Mm -hmm. And, and she has it in her, we will discover later, but at this stage as a freshman, she's so green. She, well, she's, she's very vanilla. She's very naive And she's been so stuck in the good girl and her mom wants her to be that way. Oh, yes. Which is interesting because there's lots of room, it seems, in acting for the ordinary because not everybody can be in the spotlight. She would have done well to go after the role that you wanted in The Crucible. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It would would attract. Or Sharon in Grease (laughs) 2. Burn, Jessica. Montgomery ends up giving his psych meds to Ralph. I'm like, is this Ritalin? Like, what is he giving him? Could it have been Prozac back then? I don't know because later he's pissed that Montgomery like isn't on those meds anymore. And he's like, I need something to keep me up. I need something to keep me going. And I'm like, is that, what's that? It's whatever it is that Michael J. Fox took in Family Ties that kept him up steadying. It's the same. Okay. That like, it's bad. It's bad medicine. 
bad medicine. Bad okay. medicine that good kids take. <laughs> to to study for their AP exams and and right. MCATs. Yeah. Okay. So in English class, Leroy is not putting in the work. Mrs. Sherwood says, if you can't read, you can't dance. Ugh. This is when <sighs> she challenges Leroy to read in front of the class. He refuses. She demands. He calls her a fucking bitch and storms out. And he starts breaking a bunch of glass in the hallway. What were your thoughts on this scene and particularly how Mrs. Sherwood treated him? This was such a black and white moment. Like this was so charged with racial tension Mm -hmm. that I kind of wish they would have gone into more. Like we just get it in a snippet and about this differential, I feel like, between like this white prestigious dance world and where Leroy is from and his life. And it just felt like there's so much more here. It's so strange to me because I wouldn't think that a woman working at this school with such a diverse student body would be treating him this way, but yet it happened. There it is. And at this point, we don't know that Leroy can't read. Right. I was actually surprised that he did not get expelled, that he was still a student at the school, even after all of that. But of course, they didn't delve into it. There was too much story to tell. Right. Okay. So Bruno's supportive dad, God love him. Taxi driver. Taxi driver, hardworking man. He said something like, I've invested $7,000 in your equipment. I'm like, shit, $7,000 in 1980. That's a lot of money. And he tells him, it's not normal for you to not have a girlfriend or friends. He's upset that he doesn't share his music with other people. And he asks him, are you a ghost? Like, you're never going to get discovered. You're never going to get a record contract if you're only playing to yourself. And I had read in, in a synopsis of this film They mentioned that Bruno had stage fright. And I was like, huh, oh, is that what that was? Or was it like, I I make my music for me? It comes off as I make it for me. Yes. However, I I read it more as social anxiety. Ah, yes. Not stage fright because he's playing in the lunchroom. That's true. Around a million people. Right. Like whenever there's public play he's there. they're out in the streets remember that scene where they like flood the streets as his oh my dad god plays my favorite i can't wait to talk about it yes yeah so like he's out there i think that's bullshit i think he has social anxiety social anxiety okay we've diagnosed and maybe right or maybe a little elitism about sharing his music okay okay that's fair. okay yeah. done done and done done we've solved it <laughs> This is when we learn that Leroy can't read. He's near a homeless camp. I wanted to ask you, is Leroy homeless? A good question because we never actually see him in a home. But it is also like the papers flying by and and then and then the garbage cans that are full of fire in the background. Like it's Mm -hmm. very like the stereotypical drama of the scene. Right. Under the tracks. Oh, yeah. There's always train tracks nearby. There just has to be. There has to be. So Bruno and Coco, they go out to grab a bite. This is when we learn Coco is, quote, doing her last dance on this dark little planet. So she's saying it has to be glorious because I'm a major contributor. I'm destined for stardom. What struck me about this, and I I touched on it earlier, I love how she's manifesting her greatness. You know, Mm. she has intentions and affirmations set and I know you 
are big into the practice of mantras, affirmations, intentions. How do you put that into practice in your life and with your clients also? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I think it's really powerful. And I understand sort of the cheesiness of woo-woo stuff, but I just claim it. I'm like, this works for me. And especially I would say in the last nine months or so, I have really dug into manifestations and it has been altering. I think it is really just claiming that that same, like I'm claiming this for myself, whether it means when you say an affirmation that like a money is going to show up in an envelope under your door or an opportunity or not, things will unfold the way you want. I do think it is opening the mind to seeing so many more possibilities. And I think that has been very powerful. I'm also really now aware, much more aware of the language I use. So that's why I'm kind of like interested in the word suffering because I realized I was saying, I work so hard or I need to work harder all the time. Like there was a real trigger for me about working hard when what I really want is for the good stuff to be easy. And so I will reframe that to say, like, this is a big challenge for me and how can I make it easy? And that has really changed my life, my practices, my work and my work with clients a lot, a lot, because it doesn't have to be hard. I love that because, you know, I've got a little podcast here. I've got some hopes and dreams for it, but I almost am afraid to speak them into existence. Mm. It's like, if I say it out loud, what if it doesn't happen? And then I'm a failure. It's so interesting because Coco is the direct foil to Doris, right? Doris is saying like, it's hard. I don't have Mm. it. Mm -hmm. And Coco is saying, I have it. I'm great. I'm great. I'm going to live forever. (laughs) You know, (laughs) they are the opposites of each other. And really in the end, if you're not speaking it out, if you don't have enough belief in yourself to even speak it out loud, the possibility of it coming to you, I think is limited. Right. Because you believe what you tell yourself over and over again. So if you're doing that circle, that little dance of, I want to say what my dream is, but then it might not come true. What your brain is registering is it's not going to happen. And so I have to prepare myself for it to not happen. So you're constantly preparing yourself for the failure rather than saying, I own this. I claim this. I call forth. One one strategy I love is asking a what if information. So what if my podcast was a huge success? What if I sold a thousand copies of this book? What if I made double the income this year? Then your brain starts working on the possibilities. And so for me, One of the things I want to call forth is a book deal, like with a real publisher. But in the meantime, the question I asked myself is, what if I had a book? And then I was like, well, what if I write my own and put it out there and see what happens? What if I did that this week? What if I did it today? What if I like, it just like kept spinning. And so keeping good problem spinning in your head. The good what ifs. The good what ifs rather than the shitty what ifs or the failure what ifs. It keeps you stuck in that place. And you saying this, I mean, you're practicing what you preach. Jessica, you have an ebook, Divorce 911 How to Handle Everyday Divorce Emergencies. We'll link to this in the show notes so you guys can find it. You also have a newest offering, Thrive Through Divorce, a journal with thoughtful prompts for women. And up today, 
a self-care planner for people to create an affirmation, a love letter to yourself, and three simple things to do for your body, brain, and spirit every day. <gasps> oh, I love that. Okay. So it's like, it's like a blank tracker, but I mean, it has these prompts for you, but really to keep this process going so you hold yourself accountable to it. Okay, you guys, it's in the show notes. Check it out. And honestly, began with affirmations, asking the what ifs, the good what ifs. I love that. Okay, Lisa, side character. I don't want to spend a lot of time with her. Played by Laura Dean. She was in the, the movie Chicago. She was also Sophie in Friends. I don't know. She's not doing well in ballet class. I didn't like that part. Yeah. She gets booted kind of harshly. Very aggressively. Yeah, the dance teacher's like, sorry, I'm sorry to break it to you. You just don't have it. You just don't have it. Has someone ever told you, Jessica, you just don't have it. This thing you want to do? Sorry for you. Yes. <gasps> for what? Freshman year of college, English class. Um, I wrote a paper. My teacher gave me a D. I went in to see her and to say, like, I've never gotten a D before. I'm a journalism major. This is my life. She said, you need to change your major. You'll never get an A in my class and you'll never be a writer. I had a 99% when I finished that class because it was, I was like, fuck off. I am a writer and obviously still a writer. Girl. Yes. I've had a few of those moments. You have gone on to write for major, major outlets. This is shocking to me. But definitely have had, I have had those. Another in college, I had a, I was the producer of the campus news. You may know this, but the anchor was Jenna Fisher who went on to be Pam in the office. In the office, right. So I still have those scripts, but um, she did make it. I didn't think she would, but she did. Bless her she heart. Did. And she's fantastic. She's fantastic. But um, that a very abusive television teacher told me, you're not caught up to do anything on air. You won't ever do it. You don't have it. Wow. Yeah. It's you're interesting. Like, Fuck you. I have a podcast. Like, Right, right. I have books. I, I, um, I've been on Oprah. Yeah, you've been on Oprah. I mean, Jessica, you know what? Shame on these professors. Right. Well, what about, I mean, I've had bosses say it. What about you? Has anybody ever told you you don't have it? Um, you know, when I first started, first started writing, I was a new blogger on the scene and I struggled. I struggled to create good content. I always thought I was a good writer. I struggled. I wasn't bringing in the page views. I believe that the editors saw something in me, but like, I just, I couldn't bring it to the table. And a lot of it was just self-limiting talk. I, I eventually was able to do that, but no, I mean, I've never had anyone say, what's your day job? Choose something right. else. You're a phenomenal writer. Oh, thank but you. I do think that when, especially when you change your medium, you have to find your voice again. And without practice, that's very hard. It's so much work. It has to take at least a spark of a belief in yourself to put in the energy. You have to really want it or else it's it's never going to happen. Right. So we all have a little cocoa in we us. We all have a little cocoa somewhere, some of us more than others. Okay, so this is when Doris congratulates the senior and he tells her, oh, yeah, I'm heading to California. I'm up for all these like really cool TV roles. She's like, yeah, you're going to make it. I believe in you. You're talented. We'll find out more about him later. Yes, but she's also like so awkwardly swoony over oh, yes. him. And he doesn't even see her like oh, that. No. That 
I totally related to that because I would always like those boys. It was like the pretty ones uh-huh. who were popular. And they're like, who are you? <laughs> who are you? I feel like I'm marrying the crucible, asshole. All right. <laughs> All right. They're like, what's that? <laughs> what's, a, what's a crucible? <laughs> oh, okay. In drama, Mr. Farrell tells the students they'll need to create a difficult memory. Something where they learn something about themselves. This is when we meet the ballet student, the new student, Hilary Van Doren, played by Antonia Franceschi. She was in Greece. She was a dancer in Greece. She's the new student. She's got a complicated past. Very pretty, white, blonde. Haughty. Yeah, total haughty. I meant haughty. Haughty. Haughty, not haughty. Like she's very uh, pretentious. She's, She's above it. She is not a public school girl. Oh, no. 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 But no. also a hottie. Also a hottie. Yeah. In dance class, Hillary tells Lisa that she, quote, digs Leroy's black ass. And Coco tells her it's taken Goldilocks. And Hillary says, don't count on it. So these two are going to be adversaries mm-hmm. with Leroy in the middle. Leroy's not mad about it. He doesn't mind no. being in the middle. No. No. Leroy watches Hillary dance ballet. It's beautiful. She seductively motions him into the boys' locker room. Mm-mm-mm. Doris is shocked to learn that Montgomery is going to share his most painful moment of falling in love with his analyst. And Doris says, isn't there like a word for that? And this is when Montgomery says, homosexual. <sighs> Heavy. So his problem, quote unquote, problems with women are that he's homosexual. Right. This is my favorite part of the whole film. Maybe it's yours too. This is when Bruno's cabbie dad pops the cassette into his cab and pulls up outside the school (laughs) with the big old speakers mounted on top of the cab and starts playing the song Fame outside of the high school. Bruno wrote the song and Coco is singing it. So the students just come pouring out of the school the dad is so proud. Bruno is so embarrassed. When the students come out and they're flooding the streets outside the school, they're dancing on cars, they're stopping traffic. I'm going to tell you some fun trivia about this. Okay. At the time of filming this scene, the song Fame hadn't even been written yet. They had some idea as to the framework of the song, but the students actually danced to Hot Stuff by Donna Summer. Oh. Because the tempo was close enough to what they were trying to achieve with the song Fame. So filming the scene took three days on 46th Street and included 50 professional dancers, eight choreographed routines, and more than 100 extras. Wow. Yes. Okay, what were your thoughts on this scene? I love this scene. Oh my God, I know. This is like my dream of being in a flash mob. Oh, yes. (laughs) Without forgetting um, the moves, obviously, that would be a part of the dream. But I love it. And I like, I just have a tender place in my heart for Bruno's dad. He's like this, like, you know, blue collar guy who is probably like selling cassettes of his son's songs out of the cab. Like, he's just so supportive and it's so cute. And then the eruption of creativity, so much better than the lunchroom. Hot lunch to hot stuff. 
Yeah, hot lunch to hot stuff. I agree because it's stopping traffic. It's pure madness all in the name of like dance and passion and music. <laughs> I don't know. It's fantastic. And and it's like summer and it's hot and it's sweaty and it's raw. I don't know. I just love the scene so much. And in fact, Fame by Irene Cara, it's on my walking playlist. I walk a lot. It's on my playlist. I listen to it literally every day. It's one of my favorite songs. It's a really good one. Now I have like, I have other favorites that I sing often from the soundtrack, but it was fun. Like I knew all the words to all the songs as they were playing. So fun. I'm going to live forever. Oh, yes. I'm going to learn how to fly. There's a move here that is a critical dance on a car move that I would have always wanted to be able to do. But I'm short, so it's harder. (laughs) Where you like roll across the hood of the car, but like your legs scissor as you go and your arms are stretched out behind you. It's like so sexy and and full of joie de vivre. Like (laughs) I want to do that across a car. And those cars are big because it's 1980. (laughs) I want to be able to do that where I don't get hurt, where I don't damage the car and where it looks really sexy and cool. Yes. And when I saw the dancers do that, I got a little, a little, like a lift, like, (gasps) there's the move. (laughs) So cool. It's so cool. It's such a good scene. It gives me literal life. Yes. From that, you know, high to Montgomery's low, we are now in drama class and Montgomery is ready to tell his story. These are the propped against the window with a look of pain and recollection. Yes. These, all these scenes, they're like leaning, looking out the window. It's so melodramatic. It's so good. It's so good. It's that pensive. Teenage pain. Yes. Angst. Yeah. So very emo. Super emo. Before emo. Yes. <laughs> so he said, I thought I was just going through a stage. That's what they told me. And it never worried me when I was 10. They told me the same thing at 12 and 14. And this is when his analyst leveled with him and said, quote, this is probably a life choice. Mm. Thoughts, Jessica. A life choice. A life choice. Well, this is where we were with gayness in 1980. Also, like just placing in time, so interesting to consider. This is on the brink of AIDS. So how we viewed gayness in the streets, like literally dancing in the streets or in your classroom or on the big screen is so radically different than today. Obviously still lots to address and lots of oppression and discrimination. And this just seems so elemental. Like in the arts where there's so much gayness, where it's so celebrated. And, you know, so this is a really interesting moment to look at from 2021. This film is 41 years old. I mean. It's shocking. Shocking. And Ralph, stupid Ralph, freaking Ralph, makes fun of him while dressed in, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show drag. It's awful. I mean, Ralph is probably gay. That's what I thought when I watched it. Oh, he actually is probably gay. He's into him. He just doesn't, he can't confront it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Doris's mom forces her to perform in that, at that god-awful kid's birthday party <laughs> because, you know, the parents have connections. And the terrible dress. Oh, and the terrible dress. She's just trying to wear a beret at this point. Like, she's Let just- her live! 
<laughs> Doris's mom. In drama class, it's Doris's turn to look through the window and tell her sad story. <laughs> Jessica, she doesn't like birthday parties or Brooklyn or even being Jewish. It's not bad, but it's not all I am. I don't know who I am, but I'll never know who I am if I don't assert myself. I'm 16 years old. I've got to assert myself sometime, don't I? Yes, you do, Doris. I'm 44. I'm still asking myself these <laughs> questions. I still need to assert myself. When she yeah. said, I'm 16. Right. And I was like, what? Like, did you, when you were 16, did you feel like I need to know myself? I didn't know I needed to start learning about myself. I mean, that's how clueless I was at 16. I wasn't having those questions. I'm more complex than where I live. Yes. I have a 16-year-old and I thought he would die laughing if he saw that. <laughs> right. Okay, it's now Ralph's turn. He tells the story of how he found out that Freddie Prince died. He starts crying about how the media said he was depressed. The drama teacher asks him, how does this affect you? And to your point, Jessica, he doesn't know how to be himself. He's like afraid to reckon with personal emotion. He lacks self-awareness so completely. He's so self-loathing. Like he's one of those guys that is going to end up self-sabotaging. It is so curious at this point in the movie, like, why is he in this school? How there weren't any better comedians. <laughs> well, it's kind of like to Dor like Doris. Like, really? <laughs> what, what are you doing here? I don't know. I has questions. <laughs> This is actually the scene where Lisa is told, like, you're out of the dance department. She's in the subway with her friends. <gasps> this scene. I know. Like, oh it, my God. It builds to a fever pitch. She makes her way to, like, the edge of the platform where the subway is, and the subway's coming, and she's like, you think she's going to jump. And then she steps back and she's like, fuck it. If I can't dance, I'll just change to the drama department. I'm like, yeah, you should, Lisa. You are dramatic. She like drops her dance wear, her backpack or whatever into yes. the, but I, I was doing this like rapid scan of memory. Like, You're does she jump? Does she jump? Does she jump? No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't do it. But it is kind of funny. It is kind of funny. And it's jolting. It's jolting. In the original screenplay, Lisa actually commits suicide. Oh. But the studio thought it was too dark for the intended audience. Yeah. And I also think- predictable. I thought she was going to do it. I thought, okay, for someone, we don't really know her backstory. Like what if she had poured her whole life into dance? Like you said, she was someone that had to work at it. She just didn't have that natural it factor. And maybe her parents really pushed this with her, whatever. To be booted out, I mean, for some kids, that's a devastating blow. I mean, I'm sure that things like that happen. I think the dance teacher questions her commitment to it. Mm -hmm. And in that case, maybe that's why it's easy to make the decision, ah, I'll just switch to the drama department. Fine. Right. They don't really develop her, so I don't really know. As per the 80s, complete lack of social-emotional connection yeah. regarding True. why are you failing. Right, right. <laughs> and maybe that, maybe it's not funny that she doesn't jump. It's just, it was almost like you laugh because you're relieved. Like, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. I was like, oh, God, thank God. <laughs> Hillary and Coco continue to get into it in dance class over Leroy. There's tension there. It's now their junior year. Already? Yes. 
The kids grow up so fast. So Ralph and Doris meet at Montgomery's apartment. They are rehearsing a scene from the play Marty. I was in Marty in high school. Oh. I was in Marty. This was my first kiss with a boy that I like. What? You were Doris in this moment? Oh my God. I'm so sorry to say because I just really don't like her character. And I don't like her character because it me. (laughs) Yeah. um, So I liked this boy and we got to kiss in this scene. And this was our first kiss. I ended up dating him after this. <gasps> yeah. I actually won an award for this. I will have what? you. Know I okay. Did. Oh my gosh. Okay. What was the award? I mean, okay, it wasn't like a it wasn't like a sanctioned award. It was like an award in my class. We did awards at the end of the year and people like people voted. Like I won a class award. I have a trophy in my garage. Yeah. Nobody informed your guidance counselor. Yes. Oh, I don't even know her name, bitch. Like I won an award for Marty. Don't you even know class 208? Don't you know who I am? Voted for you. Oh my gosh. But your first kiss on stage or like stage was with a boy that I liked. Oh my God. Did you like him because you had to kiss him or did you like him before? And then you're like, I get to kiss him. Okay. I liked him. He was very charismatic. So when they were doing Marty, I was like, I recognize this. And I I typed in the uh, lines they were running and I was like, okay, yeah, it's Marty. It felt so familiar. Oh my, that is a great story. Yeah. Did you rehearse the kiss before or was it like the first one? No, we did. We rehearsed the kiss before. Ooh. I had never had a boyfriend before. And so that was really out of my comfort zone to do that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, it didn't really end well between us, but that's fine. I've moved on. Well, I mean, maybe this is a cursed scene. You nailed it. That's it. That's what it is. Also, they're in, they're, they're rehearsing this in Montgomery's, the saddest apartment of all time. It's empty. It's empty. It's gross. There's like the neon lights shining through the windows, flashing. Oh, yeah. So all the while, Ralph's little sisters are home alone. This part is so disjointed. It's confusing. I feel like this was a bad edit because- Terrible edit. She steps out of the apartment, like looking for him, and then that's all we see. I, I don't know. And then later, we'll we'll learn more about what happened to her. But it, it was very confusing. But the fact is, he wasn't home to take care of his sisters, and that was his job. But they don't even really properly introduce that these are his sisters. Yeah. I mean, other than the fact that the little sister is, like, calling his name. But there's, like, no scene setting or context to Right. It. Like, you don't even know that that's his apartment where he lives. Right. This is when Coco and Bruno are at the piano, and Coco is singing and playing Out There on My Own. Yeah. Bruno's dad comes in and he sits down to listen. Bruno touches Coco's hand and they're having a moment until, of course, the dad starts clapping. Yeah. Wolf (laughs) whistling. Yes. That's my boy. Um, What do you think about this song? I love this song so much. It's It's so emotional. It is. And I think I like, like, I really kind of dig Bruno and his techno, his like electronic music. His, his EDM, yes. Yeah, his EDM. I kind of dig it, but 
with him just at the piano, just like the acoustics between yeah. them are, it's very pure and, and lovely and kind of faltering in a, in a sweet way. Right. Yeah. But also this is just Irene Cara. Mm. Showing off, man. She's. I mean, God. and she can belt it out at the, just that right moment. Yeah. Mm, I love it. I love it too. Now in the next scene, Ralph arrives in church. Right. He clashes with his religious mother and her priest over the fact that his little sister was attacked by a junkie and brought to a church rather than a hospital. How was she attacked? I'm not really sure what happened. It's confusing. I think the point here is to show that he has this vulnerability and he's so protective of his sisters, but it's just like, it almost feels like a punch in the gut that didn't need to be there for them to show that. And like you said, totally poorly edited. Yeah. I I can't help but think there was more to this and it just got cut for time. I mean, this could have been, this was obviously the story that he didn't tell. Yes. But I think it could have been managed in a much different way of where maybe he confesses to Doris or something like, here's a story I didn't tell. But like, just to make the link, but this was too confusing. This was a a low spot in the movie. I agree. It's horrendous. There's like a, how old is she? Four? I, I don't know. And then we're now back at Montgomery's sad apartment and Ralph's there with Doris. And this is when we learn why Ralph is the way he is. Again, this is the story he didn't tell. When he's like, I'm in between fathers. I guess his real dad is in prison. His mom like lets men stay at the house, I guess, to kind of help out. A- abusive situation. Yes. And and he he's there to keep out the rats. So like, I guess, to protect his sister's from these dudes. And, you know, he's all vulnerable. He's crying. Doris kisses him. They begin to make out. And Montgomery is now like in the worst. Just like third wheeling it. And he like just leaves the keys and he's like, I'm out. And yeah. uh, Oh, they presumably have sex. Yeah. That's the implication. Yeah. Oh, so this is when Doris tells her mom, Doris is going through some changes. (laughs) I want to change my name to Dominique DuPont. (laughs) She doesn't want a middle-aged name, and she can't relate to it. And I was like, girl, same. She wants to be Coco. And Coco is a good name. Did you ever want to change your name? You have the best name, Jessica Ashley. Um, Yes, I desperately wanted to be Mitzi or – Um, When I was growing up, I had a very big crush on a boy named Alex Main and his older sister who had long, beautiful hair um, on the playground in grammar school, making out with a cute boy. Her name was Ginger Main. And I always wanted to be Ginger Main. So when I would play school growing up, I always was Mrs. Ginger Main. Oh, Mrs. Ginger Main. Yeah. So oh, always wanted to change my name. Always. I had a best friend when I was like in second grade. Her name was Christina. And I loved her so much. I wanted to be called Christina. I told my parents, I want to change my name. And they were like, um, no, but if you want, we will call you Christina at home. <laughs> and they did that for a while. And then I got over it. Did you, it work out? Like, did you become her? 
I, I didn't. I didn't. I just, I really loved her name and I loved it so much more than my own. So yeah, at home I was Christina, but IRL, I was Lori. I feel like this is what happened to Doris. Yeah. So her mom's like, you're becoming someone else, like quite literally. And Doris is like, I'm growing up. And mom is worried she'll get pregnant and get an abortion because she stayed out all night. And Doris is like, it was only one night. And her mom's like, "Mm, that's all it takes. The hard truth. Well, I think maybe I thought revealing a little bit about maybe how Doris came to be. I thought so too. I was like, mom knows. Right. Mom in her house coat. (laughs) She lived a little too. She had her own beret days. Right. We're now at the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which actually was a real screening. They filmed it a real screening. Yeah. Doris smokes a joint with Ralph. She's in the audience. Where's Montgomery? He was the one that wanted to go in the first place. I didn't like that they left him out. Where is he? He's home alone. And he's singing and playing guitar. And he sang that song, Is It Okay If I Call You Mine? Oh, my gosh. It was actually written by him. McCrane wrote it. I have this song on several playlists. It's beautiful. It's heartbreaking. It's so good. But again, at the window with the neon flashing light, looking out at your angst and begging to be loved. Oh, Montgomery. Montgomery. I mean, of the characters, he's probably the one that went on to be employed. He went on to greatness. He had to. I believe it. He had to. So Doris rips off her blouse. She's into it. She's stoned. She's inspired. She's into it. And the terrible (laughs) jeans and camisole. (laughs) She joins the audience members on stage and she feels free for the first time. Liberated. Liberated. Woo! Shut off the girls. She felt liberated. And in the next scene, they're at a diner and Doris tells Montgomery all about it, you know, because Montgomery wasn't there and he should have been. She's like, they weren't looking at me. It was like a costume I put on. I'm an actress. I can put on as many personalities as I want. I'm like, you're a junior. You're just learning this now. Right? <laughs> like you're a theater major. What is wrong with you? You should have known this when you auditioned. I know. <laughs> oh my God. She's riding this high. She's so liberated until Michael, the former senior, ends up waiting on them. He's going to be a big star. He was going to be on Love Boat, whatever. He was talented. He won awards. <laughs> he won awards. He had no time to give her back in the day. And now he has all the time to give her because he needs that tip. Uh, yeah. He's the servant. No. Yeah. <laughs> the kids were just sort of like, they did not know what to do with that. That was very shocking to them because, you know, they're juniors and it's like, this is the scene right before their senior year. Like they are going to be in this place so soon. Right. What I'm interested in here is Michael had a moment. He could have really put some emotion in those specials. (laughs) He could have, he could have shown them he still had it. I was a server when I was in grad school. And I got to tell you, best tips came with when I had the good lines and I really gave a performance. So I'm just here. If I could just shake Michael for a moment, say you may have failed. You didn't get that part on different strokes. However, (laughs) you can still be an actor when you're serving up the French onion soup. You know what? He didn't have Jessica Ashley writing his lines. That's what it was. <laughs> Damn it. 
<laughs> he could be making a lot more money as a server while he still continues to try to be an actor. Yeah. But he's down on his luck, that Michael. I bet he'd, he'd sleep with Dominique Doris now. <laughs> he's focused on the suffering part of it right now. <laughs> he needs to do some affirmations. He needs some cocoa <laughs> in his life. This is when Ralph is doing comedy at an open mic night at a club. And he kills it. He murders his set. It's so good. He's invited to perform again. He's so excited. He tells Doris, like, like he's trying to plan their future together. He's just. He made it. It's all happening. Yeah. Hillary. Now we pan into ballet dancer Hillary and she's giving a monologue about how she was offered a place with the San Francisco ballet and that she's the best dancer at the school. And she talks all about her dreams. And then we pan out and we see that she's in a waiting room of a doctor's office and she's about to get an abortion. She's the one who gets the abortion. Yes. Not good girl Doris. Not Doris. Mm-hmm. With Leroy's baby, presumably. Presumably. It's, I don't know. that I like this scene. I think it's an important scene. I think uh-huh. it's interesting. She's there alone. All of these kids are doing everything on their own. They are doing everything on their own. Ooh, this is when we get to Coco. Coco's in a diner. She's reading the trades. She's approached by a man who's like, oh, like you're an actress, right? Like, like I can tell you're a star. Oh, and this gets so creepy. So oh, like so one. Gross. Oh. Oh. This kind of scarred me as a kid. I'll be honest with you. Cause I was me too. Young when I saw it. Yeah. That was this was hard. And, and before I push play, I just kept thinking about like, oh, I've got to watch that scene. Like it, it was as a kid, I just always felt like this is around the corner at any time. You're going to have to take off your shirt for some creepy guy. But it was sort of like the stranger danger fear for girls. Like some guy is going to lure you in and you're going to, he's going to film you. Do you know what I mean? Like to me, that was like, oh, this is what stranger danger really is. Yeah. And you know, like Coco had told Bruno earlier when they were out, when she was like, you know, I, I'm on this planet, I'm destined for stardom. She tells him like, yeah, school kind of sucks, but it's better than public school. Like you don't have to worry about getting raped in the hallway. Like, it was just, like, such an offhanded remark. Right. That it's like, she is savvy. She knows yeah. of the dangers, but she's still young and naive. Right. They all want to be discovered so badly. And it was still during that time where it's like, you're discovered walking down the street. Or you're right. just, like, there is a moment. So you're always waiting to be discovered. That's the only way to be saved from the situation. Right to be plucked out from obscurity into something great. Yeah. And she thinks this is her story. Okay. This creep's name is Francois. He asks her if she'd be interested in doing a screen test for a film that he's making in the South of France. So they make a plan to meet. This is when Leroy is looking for Mrs. Sherwood. He finds out that she's at the hospital with her ill husband. He goes to the hospital to tell her like, I've got a pass. I was offered a spot in a dance company. They have an argument. Mrs. Sherwood says, don't you kids think about anyone but yourself? And this is when he finally asks about her husband and she cries and they hold hands. She sees him finally as a person. He sees her finally as a person. There's nuance. Yes. The power struggle isn't there anymore. We're in the face of like life and death right now. Right. And he's offered a spot by Alvin Ailey. I don't know who that is. <laughs> One of the biggest, like, 
most famous dancers, the most lauded modern dance. Oh, okay. Group. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Okay. Amazing. So it's like I'm going big time. Apparently, I don't have to know how to read. I see. I think there's that element of it too. Okay. Like he feels seen and then they can see each other. Oh, okay. It was a beautiful moment. It is a lovely moment. This is when Coco arrives to her screen test. They spend a lot of time on her walk to Francois's house. Because it was disgusting. Like, is she debating? That's a good question. Is she second guess? She's like, she's going against her instinct that this is disgusting and creepy and predatory. Right. And she arrives and she's immediately struck by the fact that there's no crew. There's nobody there. It's just Francois. No. And it's it's like a hoarder apartment. Yeah. It's gross. So Francois is acting like this is all very normal. He's like, oh, you know, Coco, have a seat. Like, you have a natural rapport with the camera. And she's just looking around like she's trying to assess the situation. Everything in her gut is telling her this isn't right. And right. he's taunting her. He's gaslighting her. That's the term. Mm-hmm. You know, our, I thought you were a professional. Why, mm. why are you asking all these questions? And this is when he asks her to take off her top. Oh, you're acting like a dumb school kid all of a sudden. What is the matter with you? And she's crying. She's crying. And he's still directing her while she's crying. Because that's what he wants. It's oh. like gross porn. But I think as a kid, I just felt like, why didn't she leave? Now, I know it's more complicated than that. Right. But it's so deeply uncomfortable. It is. And and why doesn't she leave? She leaves, she doesn't leave because she thinks of herself as a professional. She doesn't leave because a part of her still really wants to believe that he is directing a film in the south of France. Oh, I think she doesn't leave because it's gonna be worse for her if she doesn't. She's trying to get through it. Or he's gonna oh. hurt her. I mean, I remember as a kid watching that thinking she can't leave. I thought like somewhere in her mind, she's still like, I want this so bad that maybe I'm wrong. I'm doubting myself. He's gaslighting mm-hmm. her. I I didn't think that she was able to read the situation. I, I was underestimating her. But maybe it's a both and. Maybe she really wants it to be, but also she knows this is not a situation I can just get up and leave. Oh, my God. I got myself here or whatever it is that the self-blame part of it, but it's deep and so uncomfortable. I thought it was uncomfortable watching it, you know, second time around. I'm even more uncomfortable now that you've suggested that. Well, and I, I think the reason it's so uncomfortable is because to some degree we've been there. Like it's to some degree or another, you've been in a situation where you're like, I can't leave or you start blaming yourself or I believed in this and I was naive, whatever that is, all that going through your head where you're like, I'm so incredibly vulnerable and it's not okay. It it hearkens to that. It has to. I don't know a woman who wouldn't be able in some way to apply this moment to some experience in their life. Yeah. So is it an important part of the movie in its deep discomfort? Yes, absolutely. And that terrible, like the paneling behind her. (laughs) I had that in my house. (laughs) I did. I had that in several rooms of my house growing up. Mm. Yeah. We're back at the nightclub. Ralph is getting ready to perform in a prime spot. Uh, He's edgy as hell. 
Doris and Montgomery are there to support him. This is when he asks Montgomery, I, I need something to keep me flying. That's what he said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Montgomery doesn't have meds to give him. Ralph and Doris argue about him living too hard. Doris gets pissed and leaves. He goes on stage. He totally bombs. He's so sweaty. He's just, he's a hot disaster. He's backstage, just so upset with himself. And Montgomery goes back there to comfort him and tells him, you know, failure is just part of performing. And he hugs him. This is a little bit of a moment. This is underscoring my thinking. Yeah. I mean, maybe Ralph is in denial. And maybe something has gone on between them. You think? Maybe, maybe. I mean, Doris is presumably out of the picture now. I mean, I I think I think there's something, there's an undertone. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we flash to them getting fitted and, and ready with their caps and gowns. Yes. Graduation is coming. And then there's a big final performance and the whole student body comes together to perform. I sing the body electric, which was of course named after the poem from Walt Whitman's leaves of grass. And, and it's triumphant and it's beautiful. Oh, chills. Chills. We sang this at my eighth grade graduation. You did? Yes. And I, so for years and years, I sang my kids to sleep and this was always in the rotation. So they know this song. It's a fantastic song. It's great. Yes. And the dancers come out and, oh God, it's. Oh my God. And I totally got chills. Oh, I was like so excited. This is my favorite scene. This is my favorite. And then at the end, it's like all gospel and, oh, oh, I love it so much. It's really beautiful. It's very triumphant. We don't know what happens after this, obviously, but you get this feeling from the song that like these kids are going to be okay. I like to believe that. I mean, we don't have answers about the bootleg porn. We don't have answers about whatever happened to the dancer who had the abortion. Right. We don't have answers about Leroy, Miss Sherwood's husband. Right. Did Ralph... What happened? Did he, is it forever bombed? I mean, it is, there's so many questions, but for the moment, it feels like they got through high school. They did it and they did it together. Interestingly though, some big names auditioned for this movie. Oh. Yeah. You ready? Yes. Tom Cruise. What? Yeah. I don't know what role. I couldn't find that information. I dug so deep. I, I couldn't find it, but Tom Cruise, Michelle Pfeiffer. I could see Michelle Pfeiffer in the Coco role. I mean, she went on to Greece too, so she's got some chops. She had the bangs. She had the bangs, yes. <laughs> Patrick Swayze. Fuck yeah. Oh, Patrick Swayze. But he's so not New York. However, there could have been a great role for him. Uh, and Madonna. <gasps> yes, Madonna. I mean. I mean, it's Madonna's life. It is Madonna's life. Her real life. I know somebody who went to high school with her. Really? Who said she was forever in the gym dancing by herself and had no friends and was very much a loner. And and everybody just thought weird, you know, just not, not a part of it. Not a Coco. Fascinating. Yeah. Those are interesting. Those could be a, that would be a very different movie. Very different movie. I like thinking about after I watched it, what really happened to these characters? 
Like if you could project what went on and where they went from there, is there anything interesting that you would project for that? Did Coco make it? I think this experience made Coco rethink her future. Her vision for her future looked very different than this. And and now she sees the seedy underbelly of it. And I don't know. I think her optimism is gone, but I think it maybe fuels her. I hope that's true. To move forward. Yeah, I think so. I think I think she would have gone on to have a career. Let's go with that because I like that better. Okay. All right. But Doris, Doris is a teacher. Doris is a teacher. And you know I love teachers, so not putting down. But like Doris teaches drama in English. Perfectly legitimate, wonderful career. We've had wonderful teachers in our lives. God bless them. Yes. 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 Uh, Montgomery. Montgomery made it just because he has a pure and wonderful heart. He's a good person. <laughs> Something amazing happened for him. I don't know what, but it was good. He did like the, uh, he like opened at Lilith Fair. That's what I like. I don't know that they would have allowed that, right? There were men at Lilith Fair. Were there? There weren't when I went. Oh, I totally saw Ben Harper. He performed? Yes. That's fascinating. At my lineup, there was not a man in sight. Well, anyway, I think Montgomery, he moved to the Pacific Northwest. He lived the singer-songwriter life. I love it. I don't think he could be an actor, but he singer-songwriter. Yes. Okay. Ralph, I think he went down in flames. Do you? I don't think, uh uh-uh. I mean, maybe he went on to, like, be an Andrew Dice Clay. I was just thinking. Shut up. I was totally. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Okay, that was his only pathway forward then. Okay, okay. Yeah, and Leroy, I mean, Leroy had, he already was making it if he was going to Alvin Ailey. Yes. Yeah, that was in the bag. Bruno. Bruno made it. Like, he's behind the scenes. He's doing, like, producing and, and stuff right. like that. But, like, yeah, he he's there. But he's he's in the studio. It's probably just like his real life. Yes. And he still has those crystal blue eyes. I saw a picture <laughs> of him. I'm like, you still got it. You could still get it. So, okay. Gene Anthony Ray, Leroy, sadly, he struggled with addiction mm. in adulthood. And um, he was diagnosed as HIV positive in 1996. He died after a stroke in 2003. He was 41. <gasps> oh, my 41. gosh. He had a hard life in those short years. He really did. Irene Kara said of Ray, we were all close to Gene. He was the youngest. And believe me, he was a handful. A handful. But we loved him. And he was a brilliant natural actor and a phenomenal dancer. We all just worshipped him as much as we worked hard to put up with him. He was Mm. so young and wild. I had been a professional since I was five years old. He was raw. We all had to babysit him. But it was worth it because what came out on screen was remarkable. We miss him dearly. That's so, like, real and gracious at the same time. Oh, man. She was the mom. Was she the mama of the group? I mean, she was so seasoned, even Mm -hmm. at a young age. You know, she had just been in the biz so long. That she was like, oh, yeah, I'd worked with Debbie Allen before. Oh, yeah, I'd worked. Like, mm-hmm. by the time fame came out, it was like, I've already, she had this laundry list of people she had worked with. I think she was the one who actually brought in Luther Vandross 
who was relatively unknown to sing on fame, he's on the background vocals of the song, improvising, what? remember, 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 remember. Wow. Yep. That's Luther Vandross. Oh, that's lovely. She is polished comparatively. Oh, yeah. So obviously we touched on the fact that Fame was a TV series. It ran from 1982 to 1987. There were six seasons. And the TV show was much less controversial. Mm. It was made to appeal to families. families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Debbie Allen ended up winning two Emmys for choreographing the series. And she was the first Black woman to win a Golden Globe for Best Television Actress in a Comedy or Musical. Oh, Debbie Allen. I know. What a star. In 1987, producer David DeSilva developed a stage production of the film, Fame, the Musical. And then, of course, in 2009, there was, you know, the movie Fame that was Mm -hmm. panned and terrible. Did you see it? No. No, it wasn't good. Oh, but back to the song real quick. Fame, the song, won the Academy Award in 1981 for Best Original Song. And it won a Golden Globe in 81 also for Best Original Song. And it was nominated for a Grammy for Best Album of Original Score Written for a Motion Picture. Hmm. It's a good one. I I have very few records left, but that's one of them. Oh, really? Oh, that's fantastic. For sure. For sure. So any final thoughts on the film? You know, I, th- I think it holds up, but almost in, um, you know, it's like a time capsule, but there's so much that's relatable, even in its difficulty and in what's funny. It does speak a lot about our hopes for hi- when we're in high school and forming our identity in a way that I think is kind of special. Oh, me too. I mean, I, I really did enjoy the rewatch. I thought that the movie is filled with a lot of hope and promise. And like you said, it was a good time capsule. It felt mm-hmm. like a slice of life. Yeah. Now I kind of want to watch the series. I know. Just to see how different it was. I loved it so much. Yeah. I was super into it. But I think I was super into it because I was like, I want to be that and oh, yeah. L- Lori Singer. <laughs> so. We love her. I mean, she was great in Footloose. That came out in 84. Yeah. (laughs) I loved watching it. I love revisiting it. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Jess. It was so fun to have you on the pod to discuss something that was really meaningful to you and me and our generation. And our theater geek days. I know. I miss it sometimes. Maybe it's time to revisit some community theater. There it is. There it is. Okay, you guys, Jessica's ebook, Divorce 911 How to Handle Everyday Divorce Emergencies, is available now, as is Thrive Through Divorce, a journal with thoughtful prompts for women. We'll leave in the show notes, like I said, all the links. And Jessica, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you on social media? You can find me at Divorce Coach for Moms across all platforms or Single Mom Nation on Facebook. Great. And I'd like to thank you, dear listeners. Be sure to rate and review and subscribe and tell everybody you know. We're on social media on Facebook and Instagram at the Untitled Gen X Podcast. We hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye.